and to bring us up to speed as you turn there to Exodus 3, and it's also there on your outline. Moses has just met God in the burning bush. Remember, he's 80 years old at this point. He has been uh, in Midian with, a fam- with his wife and working for his father-in-law, tending the flocks, and God meets him in the burning bush. And God has come out of his revelatory slumber, you might say. He has not communicated like this since the days of the patriarchs. And so now it's time for him to begin acting. He's not bound by time. It didn't seem like a long time, obviously, for God. But it's been a long time, 430 years uh, of, of time in Egypt. And the nation of Israel, now 2 million people plus, uh, in captivity. And that captivity was becoming more and more harsh, building up to the days that Moses left, and they'll only get worse for them. But this is also in tandem with God's providence now working for this to be the time of deliverance. And so the affliction of the Israelites had become more acute, and God now was going to act with redemption and deliverance. And he calls upon Moses from the burning bush, um, and he is commissioning Moses to be his representative, to go be the deliverer. And of course, the answer that Moses has is, what, me? How? How am I going to do this? And he says, I will be with you. Well, we're going to pick up that, that uh, meeting between God and Moses now at verse 13, and I'll read down to verse 22. That's our focus today. This is God's word. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations." Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh, Lord, Help us now as we open your word. Help us to understand 
um, what is being said and how this informs us and builds our faith and gives us guidance. Pray, Lord, as we think upon your holy name, that we would be elevated in our thinking, that we would contemplate uh, the power of your name and all that uh, comes with uh, what you reveal here about yourself. I pray that it would bring great comfort to us to see your sufficiency in keeping all of your promises and caring for us through all our needs. Help us now that we might grow in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was uh, working at Covenant Seminary on the grounds crew, from time to time, um, you know, they did everything super cheap there in that era especially. I mean, they didn't pay us much, but it worked out well for, to, to study and then go jump on a lawnmower. They had about 43 acres, and I'd normally cut the lawn was the main thing I did. And I would put my Hebrew cards on the deck of my, on the mower, and I would kind of memorize as I was going, and I could do some studying. So I didn't mind the low pay for what the offset was. But sometimes they would have jobs that required actual skilled people to do them, and they would send us to go do them, which made no sense to me other than they were trying to save money. But there's no way it saved money long term. In fact, there's a lamp there. Uh, I was just there, mm, how long ago? Just a few months ago when I went to see a hockey game. And I visited the campus. And there's a lamp post there with a light in it that I wired, and it still works. So I'm shocked because uh, I had no idea what I was doing. He just told me, match the color of the wires, and, he, and that's literally how we put that, that lamp post in. But there was another time when one of the professors, they have houses that were on uh, outer, the outer road, Dr. Calhoun was in one of the houses, Dr. Jones was in, and Hans Beyer was in one. And Hans Beyer, a German guy, a German professor who is our, our Greek teacher, um, he had an electrical problem down in his, in his uh, electrical box, and there was something going wrong with the, 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 the circuit breaker. And so um, they needed to switch it out, and there wasn't, they couldn't get a hold of an electrician soon enough, and he was having all sorts of trouble. And my boss had something else he had to do. He said, you go down and put this thing in. I have no idea. There's no YouTube at that point, by the way, which, you know, if there's YouTube, there's no trouble. But there was no YouTube. So he sends me, and I didn't want to go. I said, I, what, there's no way you should send me down to this. There are other people that, that might have a better chance at guessing this. And I was arguing with him about the fact that I didn't want to go do this. And I said, he said, no, Tony, I really need to go do it. I said, okay, he knows me. I'm in his class. He's got to know that there's no, I know he sees me riding a lawnmower. He knows I'm not an electrician. What do I tell him when he says, what are you doing with my electrical box and you know, burn your house down? And he said, uh, and he paused. He didn't know what to say. He said, I, well, that's a good point. I'm not really sure what, you know, I, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I talked him off of it because it wasn't a good idea. That's kind of what I think is happening here with Moses a little bit. Now, Moses uh, is, feels the compulsion of the Holy Spirit for sure. He's meeting God. But he's also trying to, I think, delay a little bit. I mean, scholars dis- disagree about this point. I kind of take the, the side that he's, he's poking for a way to get out of this. And the way he does it in verse 13 is he says... He's already had this interchange with the Israelites 40 years before. It didn't go like he was hoping it, hoping it would go. So here he says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them next? That, say to them. I think he's trying to basically give a, a reason for why this won't work. Um, I'm not going to be able to do this, and they're going to ask questions that I won't have answers for. Now, this question seems very simple that he's asking, and I don't think he imagines um, there to be the kind of response. In fact, the response we get is one of the greatest revelations in the whole Bible. Uh, so do you think Moses thought that was coming, or was he trying to maybe delay the idea or haggle a bit about whether he was the right guy to go and should he go? But when he asks this question, uh, notice closely, um, 
the people of Israel would have known the story of the God of their fathers. They would have known of Elohim. They would have been aware of this. Uh, And Moses knows they'd be aware of this. But anybody can just come and say, hey, um, I'm coming in the name of the God that, uh, that, that raised up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Moses is saying is, okay, but what particular name should I give? Remember, the Egyptians have gods. They have Ammon, they have Ra, they have uh, Baal, Marduk, you know, all sorts of foreign gods. Um, what's your name? You know, that, that's kind of what he's saying here. Like, well, give me the specifics because they're going to want to know the specifics. Some scholars say that the Hebrews, even in slavery, may have had some uh, kept secret what the personal name for God was. And this would almost be like a password that would be necessary for someone to say that they were really a prophet of the true God of the Hebrews. They would have to know what the personal name of God was. Rob Rayburn says about this, the answer God gives to Moses is one of the most important statements in the Bible. And yet Moses may not have asked the question for any other reason than to find a way out of having to do what God had told him to do. That's possible. But what we learn here in this revelation that God gives about himself in giving his name, it lays the foundation for believing everything else that he says as trustworthy. It's about his sufficiency. He's saying that he is the all-sufficient one, and his name demonstrates this, and then he'll continue to bolster that truth by all the things he does next. Not just uh, the generic name for God now, it's going to be a personal name for the God of the Hebrews, the true and living God. Let's look at the name and how God explains who he is through the name. Verse 13 down to the very first part of verse 16 Really, when the question is asked of him, if I come to the people and they ask me, what is his name, in verse 13, what should I say to them? He gives three different answers to this. Now, they're not really three different names, although we could take them individually. They all speak to something about God, and they build to the third name that you can't see readily in the English. So I'll help a bit there um, and give you some hints as to how to recognize when this particular name is used in the Bible. Uh, he gives three different descriptive, uh, descriptives, you might say, uh, two descriptives leading to the personal name. Verse 14 is the first name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So that's the first answer. Uh, what is his name? I am who I am. That's my name. Then he says, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So they're overlapping each other. I am who I am. And so therefore tell them I am sent me to you. Now this builds to the third name. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Okay, here, when you see, you ever wonder why you'll see the Lord in the Old Testament capitalized? When it's capitalized in the ESV, that means it's the Hebrew word Yahweh, whereas when it's Lord without the capitals, it's almost always Elohim. Yahweh is the personal name for God. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, it's a real translation enigma because in the Hebrew, it's like a Y, an H, a W, and an H is what it looks like without the vowels. And for various reasons, which I'll mention in a minute, For the longest time, that name would never uh, be pronounced by the Israelites because they were afraid to use the Lord's name in vain. It's It's not a rational choice on their part. It wasn't a helpful choice. Instead, when they saw Yahweh, they would say Adonai when they would read it out loud. 
Um, but it's Yahweh. It, we, we think it's pronounced Yahweh. Jehovah is an attempt to translate this, but it's probably not a good attempt. King James uses Jehovah all the time. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah is one of my favorite hymns, but it's probably not the right way to pronounce Yahweh. The pronunciation isn't so important as that this is the personal name of God, Yahweh, and I think that's the fair and accurate way for us now to understand it. The gods of the various nations had personal names, and now it's revealed, at least revealed again, it's not that he'd never revealed this, um, but this is the first time that the masses will see it how he reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the names and so forth. When Moses writes those stories, he goes back and puts Yahweh in those accounts. But now, after all these years, and now to this mass of people, he says his name is I am who I am. I am Jehovah, or Yahweh, the Lord. First, let's consider what is revealed by each of these names. It's, remember, it's building to the personal name Yahweh. First, I am who I am. And that comes from the verb to be. Uh, it's, one scholar says it's the isness of God, that he is. He always has been. And he's the only God. To say I am uh, is a simple way of casting out all others who come before him. I am who I am. Um, no defense needed for it. I'm the ultimate. There's mystery wrapped in it, but you also get from it. This is authority speaking. Um, God answers to no one about his existence or his authority. When they ask who, who, I, who sent you, I am who I am sent you. Uh, the ultimate one, uh, the one who's all sufficient in himself, is, has always existed, the eternal one. All this is wrapped up in this phrase about him. It's like he's uttering in response to Moses' query, I am who I am. That's who's sending you. Uh, nothing less than the inexhaustible, sufficient God. Um, this is an assertion of total divine sufficiency. They shouldn't wonder because the divinely sufficient one is the one who's sending you to do the task of being my mouthpiece to deliver them out. The second name or the second description is shorter. It's now I am, and he gets more particular. Tell them I am sent you. Uh, this narrows down to the assertion about his I am. I exist in, uh, I currently exist, and I'm active in my presence uh, I am in that I, I live. Um, it's, again, drawing on his eternality, his self-existence, his unchangingness. Um, there's so many of the attributes of God that can fall under the umbrella of the statement, I am. But eternality and sufficiency are the two big ones. Uh, I am. So when I tell you what I'm about to do and how it's going to happen, you can trust because it's coming from I am. Uh, God is sufficient. The other gods would have origin stories. Or they would have deficiencies. The people, the people propelled their attributes on the gods they said they worship. And in so doing, they were flawed from the get-go. God's saying, I am. You didn't say who I am. I am who I am. It, it seems like such a simple thing to label himself, but it speaks to his, his eternality and his sufficiency. As Moses is insufficient himself and wondering, how am I going to pull this off? Well, the sufficient one is going to be with you. Uh, Alec Moitier, uh, or Moyer, who I use for Isaiah, my favorite commentator, writes a commentator, thank you, O Lord, uh, on Exodus, and I love reading him. Uh, he's one of my favorite people to read, so I get to read him again, and I'll share what he says here. Where Moses was inadequate, there was a more than sufficient make-right in the living omnicompetent God. Where Moses was weak, almighty power would be at work. 
the God of the flame that needed no outside nourishing, bursting with his own superabundant vitality, would be there. And not because he had been invited or called upon, but by his own will and fulfillment of his own nature, as the God whose name is I Am allows his people to know him as he is. It's a great nourishment of revelation there. Now, before we go further with this name, I want you quickly to jump ahead with me um, what would have been a thousand years from this time. And you have the Pharisees who are trying to trip up Jesus in every possible way. And they say to Jesus, are you telling us that you are greater than our father Abraham who died? The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus says to them, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. He's trying to correct them away from the way they view God that tell them who the true God is. Then he says, this is very, this is, this is very provocative, to the Pharisees, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I, do not, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham, by the way, he's saying to the Jewish leaders, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They knew what he was saying. What are you talking about? And then the Jews said, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that? How can you say you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what did he say? I am. No mistake what Jesus is saying. I'm God. I am the all-sufficient one. I'm the one who's always existed. I'm the all-powerful one. I don't need your invite. I am here. What do they do? They did the right thing for unbelievers who were supposed to be following Jewish law. They picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because he was saying he was God. That's why. Back to the names now. We come to the third name, which is the the kind of, I'd say, climactic statement about his name, the Lord. Verse 15, say say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. That's the key title, or key, I should say, name. I'm, I'm being careful not to say title because it's not the same. Titles like Elohim are meant to describe something of his nature, um, or El Shaddai, uh, and so forth. But Yahweh, that's his personal name. I'll think of it as this way. Uh, Elohim is his title. Yahweh is his name. Christ is Jesus' title, Messiah, anointed one. Jesus is his personal name. Again, it's the Hebrew Y-H-W-H. It's one of those great mysteries that we don't know exactly how it was originally pronounced, so we fill in the vowels by saying Yahweh. I think this is a good, good guess. And the Jews so revered the name at the time, uh, that's why they wouldn't pronounce it when they came to it. They just didn't want to in some way violate the Ten Commandments. They thought if they didn't say the name, they couldn't say it in vain. Instead, Adonai, which means my Lord. Now, the sum total of these names is meant to convey God's total sufficiency for the thing he is saying he will do. So Moses can have confidence that he can go and be the mouthpiece, that the people can hear what God says he'll do, and they can believe in him. 
and then he'll manifest it. He'll show it. So I am who I am. I am Yahweh. Verse 15 now, the second part. Look what he says. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So it's possible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this absolutely, so take this with a grain of salt. Um, that what some commentators surmise here is when Moses goes to them using this personal name, that's when at least a number of the people who were even in captivity would have been awakened to this, this could be real. Uh, how does he know that name? I mean, you're coming to us in whose name? By what authority do you give us this revelation? Um, because if you just came to us and said, hey, I talked to God in the wilderness, Elohim, and he said, we're going to come out of here. They would want to say, well, give us some, something more that we can see that we would know this is true. Give us some revelation. And the revelation given to Moses is that his name is Yahweh. And this is used to assure the people of Israel that God is on the move, that his, their deliverer was starting to come. There's always a remnant, by the way. There's always a remnant. You know, uh, there's nominalism that happens in, in, in the church, right, where you have this big church, but there's always a remnant that God works through that he, um, by his grace, keeps spiritually sensitive with ears to hear his word. Um, we want to always be, you know, in that uh, posture before the Lord, but it's his doing. And even though you have two million people who are largely going to be complaining in a little bit as they're moved out of captivity, you do have a core of people. And the elders of the people who are looking forward to God's deliverance, just not knowing, is this really the deliverance we're looking for? But Moses comes, and the first thing he'll come with is the name Yahweh that will give him the authority necessary to move. But God gives more forecasting here. Look at second, uh, the second part of verse 16 you see that he's, he's again noting, I have observed you in what has been done to you in Egypt. So he wants to tell, he wants Moses to tell them that Yahweh sent me and he's been watching. He sees, he knows how bad it's been in Egypt for you. Um, this would be an encouragement to know that God has seen. Yes, he knows he's been watching. He recognizes what's happening. You remember back in the time of Joseph, God promised when they came back to Egypt um, from getting their stuff, essentially, and they settled there in Goshen, uh, God promised that they would eventually be brought out of Egypt and go back to the promised land, so much so that Joseph wanted his bones buried there, looking forward to that. Well, 430 long years have gone by, but now it's, it's going to happen, and God's making that promise. It says in verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, he wants to get the elders together, I'm thinking that there'll be sensitive ears there, the Lord... Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. God reveals that the time had come for the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy to bring them out of Egypt and to the land of promise. God cares for the plight of his people. It may be long and hard, but God doesn't miss what we're going through. He doesn't miss what you're going through either. If he was aware of this, surely he's aware of whatever it is that you deal with, that you deal with in silence, or you feel alone concerning, or people know a little bit, but they don't know all the time. But God reminds us, Yahweh reminds us, that he is ever-present, and he is sufficient. 
Uh, These attributes about God revealed by his name help us to be comforted. You never have to ask the question, Lord, um, do you not know what's happening to me? Now, I'm not saying you won't still struggle with the sense of your prayers not being answered when you want it to be answered. We all have that. But we shouldn't shouldn't doubt that God is ever-present, does know exactly what it is that we're dealing with, and has his hand upon the whole of the situation. He knows, he cares, and he is apt to intervene in his time. And his time is coming now to the Israelites. Verse 17, a powerful covenant word here. He sees what's been done to them in Egypt, and then he says, and I promise, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, So he's promising deliverance, but he's also promising what else? Inheritance. I'm not just going to deliver you, but you're going to inherit this land. Now, concurrently, um, the judgment of those nations have been building for centuries so a lot of times, you know, people will criticize the Bible by the, the holy wars where Israel comes and takes those nations. Israel's just a tool to bring God's judgment. God consistently brings judgments to nations, even in our times. We just don't have the Bible to tell us when this is specifically happening. But any people that walk away from God long enough and rebel against him and his law, uh, they will receive judgment. Oftentimes in this life, at least in this the, the here and the now, before eternity even. Uh, and that's what's happening with the Jebusites, the Parasites, the Hivites. It's their time. The Canaanites are coming into judgment, and Israel will be the hand upon them. Don't forget, other nations are brought to discipline Israel when they too walk away from God. So God uses various means for his discipline and for justice, and that's about to happen in Canaan. But he tells the people of Israel, I'm going to deliver you out of Egypt, and I'm going to give you an inheritance. He promises the Israelites, he promises Moses, I should say, that the Israelites will listen to him. Because Moses has got to be listening and saying, this all sounds good, but they're not going to buy any of this. No, Moses, they will listen to you, says in verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. This would be language that Pharaoh would hear. If someone would say from another, another uh, nation uh, that Amnon, the god of the Canaanites, uh, comes and they would come in his name, he would perk up. Like, yo, who, you think your god is more powerful than mine? And what is it doing? It's setting up a competition that's going to happen. So I'm coming in the name of Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews. He has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Let us go, and a three days journey means away from you, and we'll worship our God. That's, that's the request. Now, God knows that this will not be granted to them. He promises this deliverance and inheritance, but he says walk through these steps. Now, let's look at the last several verses where you have a rare instance where you know that God's providence is at work. Remember, it's providence from the life of Joseph and in general, the doctrine of providence. But you also see God revealing foreknowledge about a situation that is to come and foreordination at the same time. Rare that we see how this works out. 
the God of deliverance, the God of inheritance, and also the God of good providence. Look at verse 19 and, and down to 21, and we'll see this unfold. As he tells them what to do, he then says, but, I want you to tell them all that, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. Now, what do we know about Pharaoh's heart later revealed? He hardened his heart, it says, right? Did he? Yes, he did in time and space. But who hardened Pharaoh's heart for his purposes? Yahweh did. So don't misunderstand what's saying. He's not saying, you know, I've been looking ahead, Israelites. I want you to say this. He's not going to do this. I could tell he won't. So I think I'll do something to... That's how it reads. That's, time. That's, that's real life. That's how you're... But the actuality behind it is, just as it was with Joseph, what you intended for evil, he intended for good. Uh, and we have his providence working behind. But there's a description of his knowing exactly what's going to happen here. I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And this isn't to be confused with that kind of intuition a very wise person will say. Like they'll say, go say to so-and-so, uh, whatever this is, and they're going to say. It reminds me of The Godfather, of course, greatest movie ever. Um, when Michael and Vito are talking and Vito says to Michael, you're going to know who the snitch is because they're going to come to you for a meeting. Now, does he have foreknowledge or intuition or he's just been around a while? That's what that is. This is God saying, I know... I foreknow, I assure you, this is guaranteed, this is what he will do. There's no contingency there. This is what he'll do. When God foreknows something, it's the same as saying, this is what will happen. This is ordained to happen. This is, it's the same as foreordination. They go hand in hand. Uh, those I foreknew, I also predestined. Uh, foreknowledge to God isn't like us, a premonition or an intuition. It, it's, it's synonymous with this. So, in that light, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. This is how it's going to unfold, exactly how it will happen. Nothing will thwart this. That's the foreknowledge of God and the foreordination of God working hand in hand, all under the big umbrella of his providence. And personally, brothers and sisters, this is our God. And he has proven himself over and over. He's completely sufficient. And that's back to the proposition that I gave you. Um, by revelation of who he is in his name, um, we can know that he's fully trustworthy on all the things he promises us, which are so much smaller than the things that they're faced with right here, really. And then it says, verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, talking about the Israelites. And when you go, you shall not go empty. He's going to give them stuff from the Egyptians. By the way, um, you know, all these years of their service, uh, it's not so much stealing as they're taking what they've earned as they go. And this is the most powerful kingdom on earth, though, that he's talking about. So that's got to be daunting for Moses to think about, think about the Israelites in their position of slave. But God knew how Pharaoh would respond, and he knew the counter that he would have and exactly how it would unfold. He spells out the future for Moses and Israel and appeals to himself as the guarantee. Verse 22, each woman shall ask of her neighbor. This is intriguing. 
you know, what the relationship must have been like between the Israelites and the Egyptians. You had, you know, down near the city, if you will, in the slaves working in the projects in Egypt and in in, in Pharaoh's city, but then as you go out into the countryside, you're going to have mixtures of Egyptians and Israelites. That's happened over the centuries, and it could have been that uh, the Israelites did well enough that they even had Egyptian servants in their homes in those places. We don't know for sure, but read what 22 says. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry, any woman who lives in her house uh, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. There's a little idea that even among the Egyptians who were intermingling with the Israelites, and they were friendly enough towards them, at least some of them. We think of, we think of how it ramps up because of the plagues, but there is some uh, way in which they're living together. And this description is when you leave, you're not going to leave empty-handed. You're going to have all the stuff you can imagine and need. All right, kind of wrapping this up. What's in a name then? So much emphasis on the name. Uh, By the way, this episode is not about Moses, is it? It's about God. It's God through what he does in Moses' life. Yahweh, verse 15. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's a massive statement, verse 15. All right, now let's let's trace this in some of the generations. Just a little bit after that, thinking about the name, Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do you see why that's the so? This is Yahweh. This is your sufficient God. This is the God who cares for you personally. Don't take his name in vain. Oh, I don't know how many more years. It would been, this would be 1500 BC, 1000 BC. David, writing in Psalm 113. Blessed be the name of the Lord, and it's Yahweh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of Yahweh is to be praised. The generations. Through the generations, he's to be remembered as Yahweh. Great episode. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. You remember Ahab is citing... uh, or is giving way to the, God, the, the gods of Baal and the prophets of Baal. And so the prophet Elijah sets up a contest. And he said, let two bulls be given to us. And let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire on it. So prophets of Baal, you do your thing. You set up your sacrifice. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put it, no fire in it. And you call upon what? You call upon the name of your God. And I will call upon the name of Yahweh. That's what he says, not Elohim, Yahweh. And the God who answers by fire, he'll be the true God. And all the people said, it is well spoken, let's do it. Of course, fast forward in the story, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. You know, just before that, They'd waited and they'd waited and they'd waited and no fire. No fire for the prophets of Baal. But now Elijah says to God, I am your servant. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. And he says here, answer me, Yahweh. He uses Yahweh. Answer me that this people may know that you, Yahweh, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the the fire 
of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is Elohim, God. Yahweh, he is Elohim. What a display of the name, the power of the name of the true and living God. Fast forward to the New Testament. Remember, this will be his name for the generations. Acts 2.21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who does what? Who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul writes to the Corinthians, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, here's the final thought for you. Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Lord, how powerful is your holy name. May we never fear any of the small g gods of this earth when we have you as our God, Yahweh. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a few minutes. Anyone have a question or a comment or observation that you wanted to make? Yes.